0: Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Hi, I'm Max Henry. And this is Parkour, they said. Max Henry is a native New Yorker. Recently, he's been traveling across America by road, writing his book, The Parkour Roadmap, and pausing to explore and pick some amazing banjo. Now that his book is done, he's agreed to sit still for just a few minutes. Max has always been fascinated by movement. He started with baseball, turned left into gymnastics, and continued on to three years of state and regional competitions. In 2007, five years after moving on from gymnastics, Max discovered parkour. Initially impressed as much by the philosophy behind the movements as the movements themselves, by the time he saw his first rail precision, he was hooked. In 2010, Max was invited to join a group of World Freerunning and Parkour Federation athletes on a road trip around the Wild Wild West, kick-starting his personal progression as a practitioner. Since 2011, he's been working as a professional parkour athlete with a who's who list of companies, including ASICS, American Eagle, Hulu, the NBA, Nerf, Red Bull, Smart Car, and he doubled for jacks in the movie Tracers. He's had the opportunity to coach internationally with the WFPF, American Parkour, the Movement Creative, and Parkour Generations Americas. Outside of parkour, Max majored in mathematics, which might explain how he sticks all those rail precisions, and minored in music at Hofstra University. If you ever manage to catch him resting, he'll likely be singing, playing an instrument, or tucked away somewhere cozy reading epic fantasy, 20th century American poetry, or books about mountains. Welcome, Max.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Excellent, excellent job, Craig.: <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, Max, so you are definitely unique, and I mean that in a good way. And one thing that stands out is your clean, cleaner, cleanish image. I'm cleanish, maybe it's not actually clean. Um, so you manage to be charming, just quite simply charming, without promoting a bad boy persona. And right away, my first question is, is that a conscious decision, or I'm guessing that's just who you are?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm pretty boring outside of
0: parkour so I think boring is not what I would say but okay
1: uh, yeah I mean I guess that's my ideal way of spending time is like reading and going to bed at 11 o'clock at night, so I'm not, I'm not much of
0: a... <laughs> I go to bed before 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, but so when you see people doing, and then there was a comment, I, I don't know if I saw it in your book or on a video, there was a comment that you made about, wow, the cinematography on, on some particular video works really well for the bad boy image that that person was putting forward. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we can go into the side story of do people do that bad boy image intentionally or unintentionally or, or whatever. But so I'm guessing that you see that bad bad boy image in a lot of the parkour videos?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think most sports you see people kind of have, everybody kind of has a character that they play out, uh, whether it's conscious or subconscious. You know, we're just all our own people. And I think in parkour, you have a couple people that, You know, they're running around doing awesome stuff, Um, maybe being a little bit more adamant about like trespassing and kind of making that into a part of their videos. Right. Roof culture is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And like the store guys are really good friends of mine, awesome people. Like I've had them all in my house uh, for like a week when they're visiting in the US. Um, And they are like, they're just really fun dudes that are. Crazy and yeah, adventurous an all the time. Like it's not. Yeah, that's just who they are, um, and that's and, why it works. If, they had yeah. to,
0: if you had to fake it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't function.
1: Yeah, and I think for me, just who I am is like I don't know. I'm I'm just kind of me. So. A product of your mom and dad. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, so am
0: I. And, yeah. Know, anybody
1: that, that stayed at my house and met my met my family is like, oh yeah, you make perfect sense as a human being now. <laughs> Or seen my, like, interests in what I read. And <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I have to say, uh, I've now seen your record collection and CDs, and I'm like, oh, never mind, skip the interview, where's the record player I'm Yeah. Like, the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how did you get into music like that? Did that come from your family, or was something you picked up young, or...? Yeah, my,
1: basically my entire family are musicians. So my dad's a trumpet player and a teacher, my mom is a vocalist and teacher, my sister um, does acting and, and like off Broadway musicals and, and voice? So she's like that. in. She has voice. Yeah, she's voice, voice, voice trained. Also. Oh, explains well, that, that. My grandfather, my grand, my other grandmother, like all were musicians. My grandfather was played French horn on a bunch of like original Broadway recordings, like Man of La Mancha and in the sixties, like he was out here playing on Broadway. And,
0: That's amazing. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I was out here as Long Island. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like I no cannot can see where we are. We are in Long Island. We often on the podcast ask people what they're working on now and uh, I know the answer to this. I'm just gonna plug it right out. Um, one of the things that you've been working on has been your recent book and it's your first book as far mm-hmm. as I know, right? Unless you yeah. made one and then <laughs> threw it out. Um, And the parkour roadmap is now out. And if you haven't read it, shame on you. We will link it. Um, The book is, if you've read it, you I hope will agree that the book is scholarly yet approachable. And what I mean by that is it's like, it's got references. You need to like stop reading and go spend an hour. And then, oops, I spent my whole day off on this one sidetrack. And and he says right in front in the the introduction that it's meant to be a roadmap. You're meant to take those little side journeys. Um, So it's scholarly and approachable. And you hit that one out of the park. So, um, I really love the section on the history of parkour, um, because it links off to so many of the fun and from, they're still innovative, but really we're innovative at the time to of those mm-hmm. videos. So it actually gives people a history lesson without it being a boring history lesson. And, and that, you know, that in and of itself would make the book worthwhile, but that's just the beginning. So again, people really want to go look at that. One of the things I want to throw out is I want to just, I'm going to read a piece of your book to you. Okay. okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh No, this is good. This is good. So um, in the podcast, I have been asking people uh, deeper, more philosophical questions about, you know, where's parkour going and things like that. And you specifically said, page 124, if you want to look it up, that paying attention to what you're doing is one of the most important things you can do in your everyday life. And the most important thing in parkour... Studies have been done linking mindfulness meditation to an increase in one's ability to recruit higher order prefrontal cortex regions in order to downregulate lower order brain activity. In short, by paying attention, you can train your brain to bypass the knee-jerk fight-or-flight response when reacting to stress. This means you'll experience fewer fear responses— sweaty palms, elevated heart rate, decrease in fine motor skills—when assessing a challenge, which is a nice thing to have at your disposal if you're deciding whether or not it's safe to commit to a jump. So. I want to just bring the bring this paragraph in because this is not Max sat down and wrote fifty pages of anecdotes. He also goes into some of the science behind this and talks about things that are done. So I'm wondering if you can unpack a little bit of why you think, as I believe you do, why you think parkour is unique in that it inherently brings people to that lesson, that lesson of the paragraph that I was just reading?
1: I don't think that it's unique. I think that like there are a couple other sports, like climbing, for instance, which is something that we were talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah, at length. We were before talking about the climbing. podcast. Yeah, so anybody that doesn't know, I'm very into rock climbing and bouldering, and, and so is Craig. So we had a good conversation about that. Um, actually, one of the links in there is from an article about Alex Honnold's brain. So uh-huh. Alex Honnold, the free soloist who... who does every, oh, yeah, other, good, every other kind of climbing? That's a good book
0: to read too. If you're if you're really into this kind of the cerebral aspect of parkour, go read Alex's book. That's yeah, a good climb on the
1: wall. Excellent read. Um, actually, one of the articles that I linked in that section though is about a study that was done on his brain, and basically it was you know his his amygdala was essentially conditioned to not fire as quickly or as powerfully yeah, when he was exposed a, to they the they stuck or flight him in response. a magnetic
0: resonance imaging system and then showed him images that would make a normal person's brain light up a certain way as fight or flight. And they show these pictures of you know to him, and he's just like, yeah, yep. okay. Which makes sense, because if you've seen the kind of climbing that he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: so it's like a process of habituation, which is something that we... We are all constantly exposing ourselves to stimulus, and then we habituate. We're like we get used to it, and we're like, oh, cool, like this isn't scary anymore. And for parkour, I think the best thing about it is it's not like climbing where you have to sometimes do that, you know, seven hundred feet up in the air. It's it's accessible in the sense that, you know, when I started training when I was fourteen, I remember going up on a five foot wall and thinking about jumping off, and it terrified yep. me, and I couldn't do it. And oh. I was like, nope, this is too hard. And so for me, it was like balancing on a three foot rail mm-hmm. was the limit of my, you know, extent. Yeah, that was the was extent the of, of the comfort my, my comfort zone. And then I just gradually kept pushing it a little bit every single day. And that's something that I think a lot of parkour practitioners talk about is pushing that envelope slightly every single day. And with parkour, there are so many ways that you can do that, right? right. I think the other thing too, that's cool about parkour is just really quick that, um, it because it's so diverse right you kind of learn to abstract that concept of fear breaking down a challenge to mm-hmm. everything whereas in a lot of other sports you know it's very specific it's like climb this you know if you're not climbing you're not now. It's like oh, I I want I'm scared of jumping into water from ten meters up. It's kind of a different thing. Whereas in parkour, we do it with so many different things. Like oh, I want to balance right. on this. I want to jump here. Now I'm jumping to my hands. Now I'm jumping to one foot and do a rail. Now I'm you falling. can jump to your hands. I'm, like, I'm
0: not jumping to my hands.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> but I, I think get it, your point. I think you learned to kind of abstract that. Um,
0: more quickly than you might in, in other sports. So one of the projects that you've worked on recently um, with Jesse Danger uh, was to go and work on the, I'm going I'm to call it the water project because I want to let you explain it a little okay. bit. So just give me the, the brief version of what you did and why you went to Africa and why you were there.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, I've been working a lot with No Obstacles, the parkour clothing company, um, for the past year and a half or so. And uh, this is something that, so those of you who don't know, Francis Lyons is the one that runs KO, uh, really amazing person. He's the one that kind of initiated this whole project. He had been to Africa working uh, with a water and sanitation kind of nonprofit uh, three years ago, and it was something that really affected him. And Francis and I had talked for maybe the past two years about using parkour in some way to benefit other people, and the first thing that we realized that we could do with this project is that we could basically use parkour as a flashy thing to get kids interested in raising money. So we went to a couple of schools in the Northeast, brought you know our gear from with Movement Creative, yeah, set up, and, right. and set up, and we ran these little classes and and some events. Brought some Ninja Warrior people, and these kids are like, "Wow, this is so cool!" There's all these amazing athletes that are passionate about water and sanitation improvement in developing countries. Let's help them raise money. And the teachers loved it because it's, you know, math right. and science and physics. Like six and social reasons why change. they would love that. Right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> kids are interested. one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so that was like the initial thing, and then uh, basically the, the company, the nonprofit that was helping us um, organize where the money was going and find schools that were suitable to send the money over that you know, where it would do the most good. That nonprofit basically said, we would like to send you to Africa to work with some of these schools that you've been helping uh, teach parkour there, have that firsthand experience so that you can be a more powerful ambassador when you come back to the U.S. and keep working with these other schools. So we went out there and we coached um, at at five schools, which was an amazing, mind-blowing, really cool experience because it was so similar to coaching in the U.S. um, while also Drastically different, different. in a, like a handful of ways, but you know, you really do get that whole wow, everybody's the same and everybody likes parkour. <laughs>
0: well, one of the things we were discussing earlier had to do with um, how parkour is maturing, and we, and we went off on a long discussion about climbing, but. In this particular context, it seems to me that you need more than the money that you could raise through smaller outreach, you know, uh, demonstrations and things. So, was the project also funded with like actual? Because as soon as you say nonprofit, then corporations are like, well, here's a check.
1: Yeah. So, actually, the way that we did it was that all the money that was um, raised by these schools was matched by a large corporation, Ah, corporate donor. Okay. Um, So, they agreed to match any donation. So, I think that, you know, we got a, a few thousand dollars from one school. Uh, and then this donor agreed Could to match, match that. that and then that ends up being enough now instead of you know being able to supply new water infrastructure for a pre-k. Oh sure you, yeah, Now you, you can, can, can go and do two or three schools right, and, absolutely. With that same amount. So we went to one school, uh, Charles Duna Elementary School, and they originally had for I think it was 400 students that they had. They had one water source that they used for making the lunches, you know, everything, washing hands, et cetera, et cetera. The sanitation was non-existent. Um, and that was a school that Francis visited three years ago when they had started putting the infrastructure in. We went back. And they have now bathrooms that were as clean as any in an American middle school or elementary school. Um, they had a great lunch program. They had a chess team because they weren't worried about water and sanitation, they were able to buy computers. computers. So they have kids that are like learning international business uh, so they can, can compete in a global market. you know, and these are the same kids that meanwhile, they go home. And their homes still have no electricity, no running water, no sanitation, no plumbing, no trash pickup. Um, you know, they just leave their trash wherever they can because there are no, there's no services right, for there's waste no infrastructure management for that. Um, and so, these kids now have a school that's kind of a safe haven for them, where they can go. They have a community that's supporting them, inspiring them to to become better uh, forces for good in their community. And once we saw that you know it 's like who really, as long as you know it 's not drug money like, where 's this money coming from um, but, like obviously you, you want to question a little bit, but at the same time when you see where you know how much good it 's able to do in the right hands um, and that 's what the nonprofit that we were working with was making sure it was going to schools that were there's no corruption and that the money was actually right, gonna the money be could actually be used. used for the infrastructure
0: that we thought it was going to be exactly.
1: for. exactly, and so seeing that was just so powerful that it, it kind of put me in that place of like, wow, I'm I'm speaking from a place of privilege saying, you know, oh, let me question where this money is coming. Like, I have the ability to do
0: that. We were discussing that climbing has obviously made the transition from being Grungy guys kind of trespassing in a state park, buying large nuts at the hardware store and like throwing them in rocks and just like climbing on stuff and pounding in pitons and things, and has transitioned from that. Let's call it the late 60s, have transitioned all the way now into not just a global phenomenon with magazines and, and tech gear and main companies, but it's also been accepted in the mainstream. People don't go, Oh, you're a climber. You know, they, mm-hmm. there are a few of those people, but the vast majority of them, people go, Oh, you're a climber. Oh, and so, Oh, you teach climbing, then obviously you get paid, or Oh, you. You own I've a climbing been to a gym, climbing gym yeah. right? Exactly. It's like this totally legitimate, straight up thing, and it's not just in America. It's not like it's only because it's here. So, my question is, and the thing we were discussing before is, where do we see parkour going?
1: I mean, I absolutely see this as being kind of the the last four or five years, and I think the next four or five years, I feel like are potentially the most important years in the development of parkour on a global scale, and that's kind of one of the reasons I wrote my book, for instance. Um, that's something I'm very passionate about in general. It's just how do we keep parkour something that is at least sort of similar to the thing that I fell in love with when I started training and keep that magic alive. Um, and so for me, the book was something that I thought I could do to help. It's like, can I put together, you know, a bunch of the things I saw on forums back in the day and kind of create just a list of resources for yeah. people that are jumping in into a the sense, sport it's now. It's a
0: survey of parkour, and how saying-
1: do we coexist? among ourselves you know that's something that I've also seen from the beginning you know it's such a powerful personal thing that you've seen basically as long as parkour has existed there have been conflicts with people about how they want to express themselves through movement and and how they you know what they want to call it whatever the reasons are from the days with David and Seb and Yamak Mm -hmm. and then until now you you still see that kind of uh, that kind of stress and for me one of the most important things that I see is like i I want to I want everyone to try and just chill out and and mediate, you know, so that's like something that that I like doing in my own life and in my own training is like I love taking different groups of people and just being like, "Hey, guys, like we do the same thing. We all want to like have other people do it safely and intelligently and, like, be able to make a living off of it. Like, let's work together instead of... Yeah, and
0: we're finally getting to a point where, at least here in the States, you can walk up to a random person... And when they say, What are you doing? There's a 50 50 chance that they know the word parkour, which is like delightful. Five years yeah. ago, no one knew the word. You had to spend 10 minutes explaining you know, Have what's you even seen going Casino
1: on. Royale? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little
0: sick of saying that. Yeah. Right? So now we're reaching a point where we're really getting the the knowledge penetration into the general global mm-hmm. public. And there's sort of, I think, a flashpoint approaching where somebody's going to grab a hold of the message. And, and maybe it'll be um, a large publishing company who puts together a print magazine and just decides to put it on the checkout counter aisle in every supermarket on the planet. And whatever we thought parkour was, just you can forget that. It's going to be whatever they think it is in the magazine. And then we can have an argument where we, like we're skating day where they tried to split back off and have sort of the counter skate culture. Mm -hmm. So, and I agree with Max that the, the goal here, and when I say here, I mean globally for parkour, the goal should be to make sure that we understand the image of parkour as a whole that we're creating. And that's not an idea that I made up. Others have said that too, that it's it's important that we think about when we share an image or share a video or write something or don't share an image or we don't share videos or we don't write things <clears throat> we're creating an image.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean I would say that's definitely true especially with media, you know the story that you tell people is the story that they'll believe and that's the story that you become uh, and so for for Parkour we have a bunch of disparate stories that are being told right now where you have people that are doing, you know, their own thing. And I think the important thing also is that, you know, you don't want to suppress anybody's, like, creative rights. You you want everybody to be able to express themselves. Uh, I just think it's important that the people who are doing so are taking responsibility for their impact that they have on the global community and the way that parkour is being viewed. And that's something I think that Storer, for instance, um has done a great job of recently. Store and Storm both have kind of taken a a change of direction with their media lately, Uh, especially the last few videos Store made one with their New Year's resolution. It was like, we want to teach people more Mm -hmm. about parkour, all these things. And so, you know, I think that it's great because they're obviously a group that has tons of influence. They make amazing content. They're amazing athletes. They're traveling all over the world. And to see them make that, you know, roof culture Asia, which a lot of people in the parkour community might be like sniffing at, and like, oh, that's what is this? Like, this is the exact type of thing we don't want to promote. For me, I think it's dope, and I'm like, heck yeah! Like, they're pushing it to a level that nobody has taken it to since the yamak in terms of you know, like how novel
0: it is and what they're doing. Pushing the envelope of no one's done that before, and
1: that's that's amazing. Like, that's how that's the other way that the sport grows, right? It's not just like. You can't just have like oh we have gyms and a bunch of kids are learning at like how to do vaults like you also need to have those people that are doing gnarly stuff to, to keep it interesting. Um, but on the research same research and
0: development on the fringe
1: <laughs> exactly. But then you also have them balancing it out, which they've been doing lately with just normal training uploads and a little bit more kind of talking about their goals, things like that. And I think that's amazing. I wish that you know every every major group would just do that once in a while because they have such big fan bases that getting that perspective right. out there is really important yeah. and a lot of the people that I've spoken to other you know elite athletes from around the US around the world are all we're on the same page where everybody you know whatever your affiliation everybody's just like I want to preserve what I love about this and I see parts of it kind of leaking away and everybody's kind of just like I how can we you know right. make this how can we plug the holes in the boat um, and this is actually if you don't mind I'd like to take this in a slightly other a slightly sure. new direction uh, where we were talking about the future of parkour. And I do think that actually something, uh, my, the sixth chapter in my book is about kind of where I see parkour going in the future. And that really got me thinking about how parkour is evolving compared to other sports and, and looking at kind of the history of other extreme sports, urban sports. And I'm very, I have a very positive view. I think, I think the way that parkour is going right now is actually really, really exciting um, for a few reasons. I think that for a long time as athletes and you know, business owners, et cetera, gym owners, we've been kind of looking at things and saying, this is parkour's big break. You know, like, oh, Casino Royale, that's right. gonna come out. Yeah. Everybody's gonna know oh, parkour. This is here's exactly. the moment. Oh wait, it didn't. <laughs> and that's <laughs> like, happened for years and years where we've said like, Oh, this is Ninja Warrior is getting picked up by, you know, NBC. Yeah, it's gonna explode. It's now, gonna it be ghost. parkour. Oh, it didn't happen, right? And then, you know, they look at it and they're like, Oh, let's actually like kind of suppress parkour in this thing and like build our own, which a lot of people have seen as being negative, and I actually see it as being so positive. Because what it's allowed us to do is the people that have been in place from the beginning, you know, the Ryan Fords, like the Blaine's, the Yans, like the um Dan Edwards, everybody like that, they've had time to invest money into building infrastructure, to create their own gym instead of having to go to, you know, CrossFit XY, get money to, you know, have their own. And so we've all kind of been able to do our own thing under the radar. And gotten just enough support from these outside entities to stay relevant, but not too much where it, there's any amount of control. So it's been, to me, it's really interesting because I think that we as a community still have the reins like we're still you know we're riding the horse and we're in control and it's not like we have Red Bull on our back that's gotta switch hitting right. the horse's butt so. yeah, in, in some way
0: the the whole global parkour everything the, you know the the amount of money being spent on it the, the shoes the clothing all this stuff it's all so small mm-hmm. that sort of the corporate powers don't really care yet
1: but I, I see that as being positive and I ultimately see um, even if you look at competition things like that um, and uh, for instance, what what you're saying about the global market for all parkour goods? Say you take the money that every major parkour team makes off of selling merchandise, and every parkour company, that's still maybe one one thousandth of tiny, the uh, amount right? of mark you know money that like we're happy we Nike for spends airfare, on, right? Yeah, you know? <laughs> Nike spends like a thousand <laughs> times that much on marketing one shoe, right? You know, so they look at something like parkour and they're like, "There's no market for it." Yeah. And for me. You know, I see it as I m- would much rather have that be the case where these companies, are like, there's no market for it, there's no market for it. And then by the time they want to come in, all the gaps have been filled. It's like, oh, there's already clothing companies that are grassroots, there's competition formats right. that are grassroots, there's gyms that are grassroots, the, the X and Y, it's all been covered by people in the community that have the community's best interests at heart, that have been training for 15 years, that, you know, want to promote a safe,
0: You know, practice of parkour. And that transformation, where the, where the, whatever the sport that you're talking about, that, whatever the activity is, that transformation is just a generic thing. It happens with every activity and every Mm -hmm. sport. And you get one moment where it explodes like that. And then the horse is out and and it's over. So, yeah, I, I think you're right that we definitely need people definitely in the parkour. Seen in the parkour community. They need to start. Um, you really have to sit down and say to yourself, if I've gotten something that I uh, value and appreciate out of parkour, then I have a choice. Uh, I can either say, thank you and, and go onward with whatever I'm doing, or I can say, I have the responsibility to stop and to also allocate some of my efforts to to passing that gift on. And that's that's actually how you save it. That's how you make sure that parkour maintains whatever it is that you think it has that's great. You keep that alive by keeping it alive.
1: Yeah, I think it's also, you know, a little bit for me as somebody who's trying to make a living off of doing this awesome, awesome practice that we do. It's a little bit inspiring. Um, I know a lot of other athletes that are, you know, working Two jobs, working one job a week, trying to train full time, and they're just like, oh, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Um, and it's it's frustrating to see amazingly talented athletes, people who are so passionate about what we do, and that have the skills to really be great ambassadors for the practice of parkour, that have to drop out because they're just like, oh, I got to pay school loans, I got to right. do this, I right. got to do that, and then to me, it's like everything. I always tell them, I'm like, look at this, you know, look at look at all the gyms popping up. There are opportunities. Like it's just kind of for me. I, I I don't. And I'm in terms of the aha moment. When does parkour get huge? I'm really curious when what could happen. I think it would only
0: be visible in hindsight. Like you can look back and find the aha moment for the internet. You can find the aha moment Mm -hmm. for skating, but only in hindsight. You're never going to spot it as it's happening to you.
1: It's crazy to think though, because like I I feel like so many things have already happened with with parkour. Where you've it's been in movies, it's been in music videos, it's all over the internet, it's gone viral, it's been on TV. There's been TV shows, all these things, and you're like, still be
0: left, right? Well, we'll here's one for you. I'm not going to name names, but I happen to know somebody who recently went to Antarctica and did parkour on a cruise ship mm-hmm. and and after the fact we were, I, we were talking and somebody else said, "Oh my goodness, you were the first person to take parkour to the last continent." And, and we were just like, <laughs> "Oh my goodness, that's actually what really just happened." Yeah. So the only point I'm making is, there are still things to be done, and and if we knew what they were, then they would be done. So yeah. there's still tons of opportunity out or, there. Or you know, it
1: gets in the Olympics or whatever. The for better or for worse, whatever happens there, you know, right. that's another thing that you know people have been talking about is parkour in the Olympics, the X Games. And I look at that and I say, what athlete? Because there are people that are like, I want that to happen now. Like, that'd be so great for the community, the exposure. And I look at that and I say, what athlete from any team? You know, if I were on, I work a lot with KO. Nike comes up to me and they say, hey, you know, we see you're going to be on the Olympic team 20, whatever, 2020. We'd like to offer you $70,000. $70,000. Yeah, like right? any, any money. Like any parkour athlete, they're like, what, $10,000 a year? Yeah. Like, oh gosh.
0: Five digits? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> you
1: know I mean, yeah. So then I'm, I look at that and you're like, these are people that are literally struggling, struggling to survive. How are they going to say no if a big company comes in and offers them any money? And for the Olympics, obviously, there are rules with sponsorship and things like that. But, um, if there were any kind of major sponsorship like that, it would be hard for somebody that even if they're the face of their own team to say no, just because of the comfort that that would bring to their lives. And then you have now, maybe that happens to the right five or six people. Now you have maybe the five biggest Teams and faces of parkour for a lot of the kids that are, you know, now those all right. dissolve, things now fall it's apart. On the Wheaties and, box, right. and then it's like, okay, now who's going, who, you know, where are the grassroots teams, where are the organizations that have been working for years, all that could be undone with like five contracts right. <laughs> to the right people.
0: Well, and, and I think it will. Which is that scary. going to happen. Like those, but,
1: you know, hopefully, fingers crossed that it takes eight more years or 12 more years where then you have gyms that are in place and apex is like oh we opened up our 30th facility in america so right. we can offer you this contract the, instead of right.
0: under armor or you know well i think that there's um more and more uh inroads being created to primary schooling so mm-hmm. parents are now open to parkour being like a regular thing, like my kids in karate, your kids in soccer, and my kid does parkour, and it doesn't even make a, an eyebrow raise anymore mm-hmm. at dinner parties. So as that has now happened, then that creates an economy for that, and then those kids grow up never really thinking that parkour is exceptional in a bad way. It's exceptional because it's fun and they love it, mm-hmm. but it's not exceptional like only weird people do that. And 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 that's Which is true. Well, <laughs> well, I guess if you if you count heads and you say, you know, so many billions of people on the planet are one way. And then there's a certain number (laughs) of us that are the other way. Yes. We're the weird ones, but in reality, I think the people who do parkour, um, people, people ask me, you know, people in my age cohort ask me about it. And I say, well, you do parkour. When did you stop? You know, and it was probably around 14. Like actually, if you're, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're over 30, for example, sit down for a second. And I want you to tell me the last time that you climbed on a jungle gym, and if you can't tell me the exact month, then that means it was like when you were in sixth grade or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, that's a long time ago to have been, not been four feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. So I anyway, mean, now we're off into talking about what the nature of parkour is. But I really think it's a, a common theme that I'm hearing with almost anybody that I talk to anywhere is that we all feel that there's this responsibility to the greater parkour ethereal thing. Like we all owe it something. And uh, there are a lot of people who are famous names who who like would nod vigorously, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that that's a great place to go. I'm glad we got to talk about that. So in every podcast episode, I try to get to asking the guest uh, if there is a story you would like to share, because as I said, often the parkour community is full of spectacular stories. And what I'm really interested in is a story that's special to you. So one that you're passionate about, uh, it can be an insight, it can be pretty much anything.
1: So... There's so many stories. I mean, I've traveled all over the place and it's cool to to think about this. But I think based on kind of what we've been talking about today, um, I'd maybe like to just talk a little bit about how I started training. Because one thing that I get a lot from people that I train with now is, you know, they look at me and they go, wow, you're not afraid of anything. Or like, you know, "You're you're this is crazy. How do you do that? And they just assume it's like some genetic mutation. <laughs> and I have like a 20 minute Video that I filmed on my dad's like handy cam from 1998 that's on YouTube actually, of me talking to a camera and like sitting and setting up a camera and just talking to it for minutes about like I'm I've been trying this jump for days and it's like a two foot like rail concrete <laughs> you know and, and people just assume that if you're at a certain level they're like there's no
0: you've always been there yeah right? exactly <laughs> oh no? you must have started
1: and you just were amazing and or you know whatever uh, and so I kind of would like to just share the way that I got into training because I think that it's very um, accurate to the way that I still train. And it's kind of very true to... It explains a lot about who I am and how I train. Um, So my best friend, Calvin, who was my initial training partner, we didn't have a computer uh, when I was a kid. I didn't have a computer until I was 15. So we used to go to the library, hop on the computer. And uh, one day we were there and we were on YouTube looking at videos and he just turned to me and said, Man, I saw this crazy news report the other night about some guy who could just jump on walls like Spider Man, and I was just like, "I'm not going to let you go with that. Like, you need to be more descriptive." <laughs> you know, like what? What do you mean? Uh, and he couldn't really explain it. Like him, him yeah. trying to, he was just no like, "No words, right?" He was like, it's just like this guy, and he kind of would like he'd jump on the side of a wall and then like stick there for a second, and then like go to the another wall, and then like he could like jump to like little metal rails and stuff. It was crazy." And so I was just, I had no idea what he was talking about. Like I'm, I can't even picture it in my head. Um, and I was kind of like, you know, like Jackie Chan, like what are you? And he's right. like, no, it was like way crazier. He would jump between buildings like 30 feet and I'm just, I didn't know. And he couldn't remember what it was called. So we went on YouTube and, um, I was really into like martial arts and stuff at the time, like all kind of self instructed. So I was like, I don't know what it's called. You know, let's just look for things. So we're typing in just whatever, like, uh, Extreme stunts, you know, things like that. And then finally, we typed in Spider Man guy jumping on buildings and the letter P <laughs> because he remembered that started with a P, but he didn't remember what it was. So we type in like Spider Man guy jumps off buildings, the letter P. And then the first video that popped up was uh, David Bell's Speed Airman. And then we start watching it and he's like, oh my God, this is it. This yep. is it. And I was like, at the beginning, I was ragging on him. I'm like, dude, how did you not, like, it's some dude with tattoos, you know, flexing. How did you not be able to describe this? And then as soon as the action started, my brain was just like totally, yeah, (laughs) it was just mind blowing. Like, I didn't know how to, how to compare it. There was no context for me. Um, And as soon as I saw it, I was just like, this is so intense. I want to do this. I do not know how the heck I would ever be able to start doing this because it's just massive roof gaps. I'm just, yeah. and so I, I went to the playground, um, right across the street. And I remember climbing up onto something like a fence, four feet high, five feet high, and I was just like, I don't want to jump off of this. Nope, forget that. And I like went down. <laughs> and I was a, a gymnast when I was a kid, and so I remember thinking, okay, like where can I start? That's something that scares me, but like will be in my range. And so I was like, oh, you know what? I used to love doing like tumbling, like back handsprings. Haven't done one in years. Let me see if I can do it. And I had probably for two hours stood in a field and just tried to con- commit to a back handspring. And I had never experienced that level of mental frustration until that moment. Because even as a kid in gymnastics, like you have a coach, you have mats, you know, they're like, oh, progress on, do it on the trampoline, do it into the pit, whatever. Right.
0: As soon as you're stuck, they give you the, here's the wedge. Here's exactly. The, you know, here's the mental suggestion. So,
1: so it was fall. And I remember just piling a ton of leaves into a pile and like flopping onto my back for an hour, just like, oh, okay, this is the worst that can happen. And I'm like basically just jumping up in the air and like landing on my neck, like, okay, I can do that and I'm safe. And finally, my buddy Calvin's like, I've got to go, I got to go. Like, I, my mom needs me home. And so he had to leave. And I was like, well, I don't want to do it alone because I might die and no one will know. <laughs> and so I finally committed to it. Did it totally fine on my first try, it was like perfect. And I was just like, of course, like that's how it would happen. Um and I just remember that mental process was really crazy. And then there was still like a a moment though where I didn't know where to go after that. And then, this is what I told Blaine when I met him when we were hanging out in June at the American Rendezvous. Um, I remember I was like scrolling through videos, I saw an old Cambridge video. Which I watched a training in two thousand summer two thousand six training in Cambridge, and then I saw Blaine's um, Excelsior video. And when I saw him do a rail precision and stick it, yeah,
0: it's like <clears throat> did they freeze the video? Oh, no, yeah, no, it was movie, it's still
1: running? <laughs> my brain literally was like, forget everything else that I've seen. Like, if I can land on an, a rail and stay there. Like I will be happy with my entire life. Like I will
0: never. <laughs> the meaning of life is a stuck yeah. rail pre. To
1: me, that was just like the most amazing. The, I was just like I didn't know it was humanly possible to have balance that was right. good enough to do that. And so I, I remember in June I went and told I was like Blaine, yeah, like when you when you did the a couple of those rail pre's in the Excelsior. It was literally like life changing for me. Like, I saw that and I was just like, I didn't even think a human being could do this. And then he just turned to me and he's like, Well, I think you've uh, gotten the whole jumping to rails thing down since
0: then. (laughs) Yeah, you can move on to something else. (laughs)
1: Um, So it's funny because to me, like, I look back at that story and I have pretty much the exact same approach. Like, I was a wuss. Figured out a like less wussy thing to do that still was scary, you know. Managed to like commit to it after a long time. Got it really easy on my first try, and then decided I didn't like flips and wanted to do rail precisions. And that basically sums up my entire parkour experience <laughs> since then. <laughs> so that's ten years of parkour training in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> All right, and of course the final question is: Can you describe your practice in three words?
1: I was thinking of one earlier, which I think is is pretty pretty accurate. Although it's kind of like a, I feel like it's a dual edge. When I first started training, I would have said jumping and thinking (laughs) is basically like my entire training process. That's three
0: words, jumping and And thinking, thinking.
1: you know, and and thinking about jumping. Those are kind of both, both my, my things. And then now what I've been trying to get to is, is basically, uh, jumping without thinking. (laughs) So that's that's kind of been the process is like developing the habit, thinking about it, you know, analyzing it, tinkering with all the techniques. And then now at the point where you kind of just throw all that out the window and say, all right, it's all ingrained in my body. I've done 50,000, 100,000 repetitions. Now I need to just trust that it's all there.
0: So I guess those would be my,
1: I guess that's kind of like a nine word process, but <laughs> the evolution of my, uh, the
0: evolution of getting down to jumping without thinking. Yep. Cause if you start there, you're just going to fall
1: apart. <laughs> that's how you, that's definitely how you fall apart as a human being.
0: <laughs> you just break immediately. <laughs> Terrific. Well, thank you, Max Henry. We appreciate your time and energy today. Thank you, Craig. That was super fun. And of course, there's a website. Visit parkour.theysaid.world for this episode's notes and transcript. The site also has writing from people around the world, and everything is available in a dozen languages.